Regardless of whether you are used to the things of church or not, welcome. Regardless of whether you're used to the things of God or not, welcome. Regardless of whether you think you should be here or not, welcome. Here at Grace Point, we are not a bunch of people who claim to have our lives together. Instead, we're a bunch of people who think we are desperately in need of help. And so we welcome anyone whether you think you're good enough or not. We know that God loves the broken. God welcomes the stuff-ups. We know that God meets each person where they're at, not when you've cleaned yourself up, but when you come to him asking for your help. Welcome. We started a new three-week series in the Gospel of Luke last week, and we've been encouraged to remember that the things of this world and its possessions have an expiry date. God's encouraged us from his word to use our resources, our money, all that we have to invest in that which lasts, people. While all things fade away, people will last in eternity, in friendship with God, or not in friendship with God. And so we are to invest now for the future in the work of people coming to hear about God becoming his friends. We're going to keep thinking about that today, and in particular, about who our God is, namely that we declare him, Jesus, to be king. Christians say Jesus is king, and so the question today then is, what does it mean for us to live with a king? Sure, I guess we have King Charles now, but we're in Australia We never really cared about the monarchy. We're a slave colony, right? And even if we did care about having a monarch, it's unlikely to change much of our everyday lives. I'm not sure about you, but I'm not planning to go to the supermarket to get groceries for King Charles. Or I'm not going to King Charles to get a home loan approval. He barely touches my thoughts, usually. He's a king who is distant from me and my world, and he's probably fine with that. He probably doesn't even know my name. In fact, if he knew my name, it probably means I'm in trouble. But is that the kind of king our God is? Is he distant, unconnected, unconcerned about what we do? A king who doesn't affect our daily lives at all? What does it mean to live with God as our king? That's what we'll be exploring today. There's an outline in the bulletin you should have gotten on your seats Pop that in your Bible open. They'll help you follow along. There's four parts of this talk today. The expectation of the king, the servants of the king, the response of the king, and it leaves us to wonder what it means for us to be servants of the king. But before we dive into that, let's ask God for help. Please pray with me. Father God, we thank you that we can meet you in your word We ask that your spirit would open our hearts to receive your word with faith and thanksgiving. We ask that you would show us Jesus in your word this morning. Father, help me to preach your word faithfully so that we would know you and serve you. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. First of all, the expectation of the king. Verse 11 starts by telling us when Jesus tells this parable, this story, Jesus tells this parable while they were listening to this. This is is, is the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, if you don't know already, he is a traitorous 
thief. But when Zacchaeus recognizes who Jesus is, that he recognizes that Jesus is the Lord, Zacchaeus gives up his money. He makes restitution because he knows who Jesus is. And so that changes Zacchaeus' life. And Jesus says, Today, salvation has come to this house, to Zacchaeus' house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The man who thought he was seeking Jesus was instead found. It's a great reversal. And it's linked to today's passage. Because just as the crowds watching heard the word today to Zacchaeus, Jesus tells them another parable connected. Because as soon as they hear the word today, verse 11 tells us, Jesus tells this parable because people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once, today, right now. The kingdom of God appearing implies that the king is here to usher in the kingdom. And Jesus tells today's parable to explain who he is as the king of the kingdom. And so he begins his parable. Verse 12, Jesus says, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. Makes sense. He's going off to be made king, then to return. The fact that he is of noble birth tells us that the people of this nation should have been waiting for this, ready to receive the new king. It goes on. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. Ten servants, one each. Put this money to work until I come back. The master gives his servant work to do in the meanwhile. I will come back once I am king, similar to last week, work now, living a lot of the future. This is the expectation of the king, that they will take the king's resources and put them to work for when he returns. And if they really think he will come back as king in the future, it will change what they do now with his resources. The question we have to ask is, how do the servants of the king respond to the king? How do the servants of the king respond to the king's expectation? We're at point two, servants of the king. The king goes away to become king, but there's a problem. Verse 14. But his servants hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man as our king. And if you think about it, it's kind of odd. Didn't they already know he was of noble birth? And they went so far as to send a delegation after him to tell him, we don't want you as king. I don't know about you, but that seems really treacherous to me, treasonous even if this man does become king. It doesn't sound like a very wise move, which is why when you read verse 15, you might go, Ugh. regardless of what they've said, regardless of the fact that they didn't want him as king, he was made king, however, and returned home. Ugh. What happens when he gets home? He sends for his servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The king has become king, and he has come back, so how have the servants responded to him? The first one came and said, Sir, 
your miner has earned 10 more. Wow. A 1,000% return. He's taken the master's one miner and earned 10 more. The NIV footnotes tell me that one miner is about 100 days wages, about a third of your annual income. So to put it in perspective, imagine your income to be, say, 90000 a year. That means he's taken 30000 and turned it into $300,000. That's a staggering return. This servant must have really used that amount thoughtfully. It wasn't unheard of in those days to risk large amounts for great returns. This servant has been faithful. And so the master says, well done, my good servants. The master comes back and recognizes the work of the first. You you might stop here and say, well, Popo, he just did his job. That's what he's expected to do for the king. But what is extraordinary about this passage is how generous and kind the king is to him. Did you notice? He says, firstly, you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. To the king, 100 days wages, $30,000, a small thing to the king, which makes sense. He owns the kingdom, right? But the reward of the king is really surprisingly staggering. He says, take charge of 10 cities. That is staggering. The new king appoints his faithful servants to share the ruling of his kingdom. Can you imagine going from being a financial investor to now you run 10 cities, a ruler? The master, this king, he is generous and he is kind. He could have just said, yep, you've done just as you should. But this master goes above and beyond and is unnecessarily generous, unnecessarily kind to this servant. Second servant, likewise, they come and say, Sir, your miner has earned five more, $30,000 to $150,000. Not as much as the first servant, but still really impressive, still faithful. So the master replies, Take charge of five cities. Again, the master is unnecessarily generous. The king sees the work of the servants, and he goes above and beyond. The two servants may have been just like the people earlier who said they hated this man and didn't want him to be king. But perhaps now that they've actually talked to the king a bit more, they have a new picture of who the king is. Perhaps before, they just didn't get what the king was like. Perhaps they didn't really know who the king they were serving is. And they are like Zacchaeus, as we heard earlier. Once that Zacchaeus recognized that Jesus was the king, he gave up his resources in service of the king. Zacchaeus knew who the king was, he knew what he was like, and it changed the way he lived. This is a king who is not far or distant. He's not far from being unconnected with life. Instead, he's a king who has come right up close and personal, meeting Zacchaeus, meeting his servants, seeing their work is generous and is kind. But there's a contrast with the third servants. 
another servant came and said, Sir, here is your minor. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. This servant has taken the master's resources and he has done nothing with it. In fact, it's a bit worse than that because he puts the equivalent of $30,000 wrapped up in his handkerchief. You almost get the picture of a man who is scared and afraid of the responsibility given him. And so he grabs out his handkerchief, wipes off his sweat, he's nervous, shoves the miner inside, puts it in his pocket and just hopes the master will not come back as king. Oh, I just can't deal with that. The servant is irresponsible. He shirks his duties. He's not even really the safest place to keep the master's wealth. It's in his handkerchief. Why does the servant do this? The servant says, I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. This servant has a very different picture of the master. And that's completely affected the way he's responded. He thinks the master is a hard man, a merciless man, someone who exploits his workers, a cruel master, and so he is afraid. It is odd, though, because that is hardly the picture we've seen as the master has treated the first two servants. The master has been nothing but kind and generous to them. But because of the way this servant sees the master as a hard, cruel, merciless master, it has completely changed what he has done with the master's resources or what he has not done with the master's resources. And so it's clear for us, as we look at the responses of the servants, the way that they see who Jesus is, see who the master is, that directly correlates with the effort they put in into managing his resources. The question that we are left with then is, how will the king respond? Point three on your outlines, the master says, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servants. The master takes on the idea the servant has. He'll play his game by your rules. Okay, I'll play your game. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Oh, you think I'm a hard man? Well, if you thought that then, why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I come back, I could have collected it with interest? Surely, if you thought if I was a hard man, you'd be driven by fear to make sure you don't upset me. But what you have done actually doesn't reflect who you say I am. If you really thought I was a hard man, you would have done the absolute minimum and put this in the bank for interest. But instead, you were lazy. You were unfaithful. You did not treat me as king. So, take his minor away from him and give it to the one who has ten minors. Those around protest saying, Sir, he already has ten And the master helps us explain why. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as to one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. The first servants, first two servants, have used the resources of the master well and so are given more. Why? They treated the king as king. Their resources were not their resources. They were the 
king's resources. On the other hand, the last servants wasted the resources of the master, and so all was taken away from him because he has not treated the king as king. He will not share in the kingdom. If you don't accept him as king, how will he be part of the kingdom? He has rejected him. But the master goes even more strongly in verse 27. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Gosh, that's a strong statement. Did Jesus really say that? Well, something really interesting about this story, this parable, is that Jesus is actually referring to real kings, real historical kings that the audience in front of him would have known. Look at this fella. Handsome fella, isn't he? Uh, king Herod became king of Judea in 40 BC. And he did so how? By leaving Judea, he went to a distant land, Rome, and was made king there. Sounds familiar. Even more than that, King Herod's son, Archelaus, did the exact same thing in 4 BC, just 20, 30 or so years before Jesus spoke these words. A Jewish historian, Josephus, writes of a delegation being sent after Archelaus as he goes to Rome to be made king. Why? Because they did not want him to be king. The parallels are really clear with history and the story that Jesus tells. But perhaps most importantly is that when Herod and Archelaus came back as kings, what did they do? They killed those who opposed them. They were cruel and hard and merciless kings. Jesus says this parable to say, if you oppose those kings, it would not be good for you. You don't oppose the hard, cruel master. You don't squander their resources. But the question that you and I will be asking now is, is that the sort of king that Jesus is claiming to be? Because knowing the kind of king that Jesus will be is at the very heart of this parable. Because remember at the very beginning of the passage, Jesus tells us why he says this parable. He tells this parable because people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once, right then and there. But like the parable goes, the king must first go to a distant country to have himself first made king. The question then is, where is Jesus going? At the very beginning and the very end of the passage, he starts off near Jerusalem and he ends up going to Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, what happens? Jesus is led in front of everyone. He is crucified and he is killed. Everyone there ponders, is this really the king? Wait a second, Popo. I thought you said that the story goes, a king goes to a, a distant land, he is made king, and then he returns. But Jesus goes to a distant land, Jerusalem, but he dies. He is killed. He is executed painfully and shamefully. Well, that's almost like a verse that we read just before. Whilst the enemies of King Herod and Archelaus were meant to be brought there and killed in front of the king, Jesus is treated 
as the enemies of the king would be. He was brought in front of everyone else that were meant to be his subjects, but his subjects hated him and didn't want him to be king. And Jesus was brutally murdered and killed in front of them all. What's Jesus doing? Jesus is making a statement about his own kingship here, what kind of king he is like. He is a king unlike what you have seen in Herod and Archelaus. He is treated as the enemies of the king is. He is bringing in a new kingdom, not with a sword, but with a cross. The great irony of the cross is that that is where Jesus is coronated. That is where Jesus becomes the king. The surprising thing is that Jesus is crowned not with a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. As Jesus dies like the enemy of God, he takes the place that people like you and I deserve, the enemies of the king. That is far from a king who is cold and distant, but it's a king who has come up close and personally who loves his people. But the parable goes on. He goes off to be made king upon the cross. He dies, rises again. He ascends to the right hand of God. And he still promises that he will come back. And he promises to come back to see what his servants have done with his resources. That is still his expectation. And this is so important for us to remember because knowing who Jesus the king is, it shapes everything about how we act today. And so we're led back to our original question. What does it mean to live with a king? What does it mean to live with a king like King Jesus? We're at the fourth and last points. We are servants of the gospel. And firstly, our passage today reminds us to start with knowing who your king is. Know what he is like. King Jesus is not a hard master. He's not cruel or merciless, but he is kind and generous. He sees the work of the faithful servants and he rewards them abundantly and generously. Can I say, there is never a thing you do for the King Jesus that he does not notice, that he does not see. There is never a thing you do for King Jesus that he will not generously reward because he is kind and he is generous. Whether it's those attempts you made at sharing the gospel of Jesus whether it's those awkward interactions welcoming newcomers to church, whether it's holding your tongue when you could have lashed out. He sees, he knows, he rewards. Look forward to when he comes back, when to each of his servants he will say, well done, my good servants. But it's also important to know who our king is because That's how it keeps on motivating us as well to live for him. He's not a hard master cracking a whip, trying to check on you as you live your life, waiting for you to slip up and to punish you for your sin. No, he is kind and generous. He has died in the place of his servants, which is important to remember. He rules his kingdom. He motivates his kingdom, not with fear, not with shame. He motivates his kingdom, you and I, by love self-sacrificially giving himself with kindness and generosity. We never move from remembering and treasuring the gospel because for me, and maybe for you, I know it's so easy to be motivated by shame and fear. 
It's easy to be motivated, fearing that king, the king will come back and hit me in the face for what I've done wrong and done bad. But friends, that is not the way of King Jesus. King Jesus is someone who comes and is pleased. He loves his servants. He is not a cruel master. And we keep coming back to the gospel because we see our king there and we know what he is like because we always keep forgetting what he is like. We think he is a master who drives by cruel and merciless ways, but he is not like that. He motivates and wins us by his love. And the more we begin to know King Jesus, the more we begin to realize, yes, he is king, not me. Yes, like the servants, their resources are not actually their resources. They are the king's resources. We begin to realize our resources are not our resources. Rather, your resources are his resources. Notice in the parable, where does the initial capital come from? It comes from the king. All good gifts come from God. And as we see our kind and generous King Jesus, how he has given everything for us on the cross, as we feel the relief of being saved from death eternal, as we feel the warmth of being embraced into his family, we respond in a wholehearted giving of all we have, knowing that all we have is not ours, but his. Everything we have has come from him graciously as a gift. And so we serve our King not begrudgingly, but wholeheartedly. We serve our king not miserly, but generously. We serve our king not upsettedly, but joyfully. Remember, the things of this world have an expiry date. We are like the servants in the parable, given the resources of the king to put it to work till he returns to multiply it for his arrival. And we put his resources to work for the sake of the kingdom, investing in the one thing that does not expire, which is people. We, to multiply his resources is to invest his resources in seeing more people know Jesus, in seeing more people in Jesus' kingdom. We take steps today to secure tomorrow. But the question I want to ask is, do you think this statement is true. Do you think your resources are really his resources? I know for myself, I often feel like they are mine. I worked my butt off for those 16 hours straight on my feet. I am exhausted. I should be able to spend this money however I want for myself. And don't get me wrong, there is goodness in enjoying some of the good things of this world. The Bible does not paint a picture of the Christian life that enjoys nothing of this world. No, no, no. God is far kinder than that. But I know in my heart of hearts, when I begin thinking that my resources are mine and not God's, I realize I depend less on God. I tend to treasure the things of earth more than the things of heaven. I begin to forget that there are things of greater importance than my own comfort and happiness. And actually, as I give of my finances, as I give of my time, as I give of my energy for the kingdom, it teaches and reminds me of the things that are important, not just now, but for eternity. 
It teaches and reminds me that I don't need everything I want, and living for just my wants, well, that's kind of like slavery all over again as well. It teaches and reminds me who my king is, that Jesus is king and I am not. And if I am his servant, then my money, my time, my energy is not mine, but his. The gospel frees you and I to enjoy this world wonderfully. But the gospel also frees you and I to enjoy the things our king loves. The gospel frees us to enjoy seeing people come to know Jesus. Jesus gives us the privilege of being part of his kingdom work, being his servants. He grants us the privilege of investing the resources he has given us to invest them today in seeing people know him tomorrow. I said this last week. I'll say it again now. When you and I get to heaven and we see our king face to face and he says, well done, good servant, I guarantee you, I will not regret a single moment I gave to the gospel. I will not regret a single dollar I invested in the gospel. I will not regret pouring out my energy in seeing others know Jesus. I will be too busy in heaven looking at my wonderful king who has died for me, excited to serve him for the rest of eternity, amazed that God used my futile and sometimes silly efforts to see more people there in his kingdom with me forever. If I got to heaven and I saw my family there, if I saw my friends there, if I saw people I never even expected to be there, I would be in awe. I'd be so grateful. I'd realize, man, I've invested well. I've invested in things that will last and that motivates me today. Surely I would then take action now to secure tomorrow, knowing that his resources, my resources are his resources. Know who the king is. Know whose resources you have. Take steps today to invest in the future. Invest in seeing more people know and love our King. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that Jesus is the King, a kind and generous King. Help us to live now knowing that we are his servants. Help us to remember that all we have is yours. Help us to steward your resources well, to enjoy your good creation well, but to invest in seeing people come to know you seeing your kingdom grow. Would your spirit grow in us a generous spirit that delights in using your resources to multiply them by seeing more enter your kingdom. Let us never move from the gospel, but to keep being one and moved by love as we see our king take our place on the cross. We pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.